Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus, your Son. In the words of the old hymn, in, in our hands no price we bring, simply to the cross we cling. Lord, you speak from this platform routinely. So we are not asking you to do something that you're not accustomed to doing. We are praying that you'll do it again. We're thankful for the way you bless us at this camp meeting. And we pray that you'll do it again. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Don't allow the limitations of fallen humanity to prevent your spirit from working in a great way tonight. We are here bodily. We want to be here uh, in, in spirit and mind. So, Lord, be our focus. Uh, take us and unite ourselves with you that we would hear what you want us to hear. Let your word have a transformational effect on us tonight. We pray sincerely in Jesus' name. Please say amen. <clears throat> My friend Adam Ramden shared this story at an It Is Written partnership event, and I'm glad he did. Uh, I read somewhere that they're making a movie about this. It happened during World War II. The then British Prime Minister Winston Churchill declared what was unfolding. He called it a colossal military disaster. Churchill spoke words of confidence, but in this instance, there was no confidence to be had. 1940, one year into World War II, British troops in France found themselves in a desperate situation. They were being pushed back by German troops. Thousands of actually not only British, but Belgian and French troops found themselves hemmed in on three sides, and behind them was the English Channel. They had nowhere to go. It was as though Hitler's noose was around their neck, and all he really needed to do was tighten it, and it was all over. But something remarkable happened. For reasons that to this day remain unclear, Hitler took his foot off the collective allied throat. Nobody really understands why. Uh, he called back the, the, the divisions of tanks. The soldiers were told to just uh, take it easy. Somebody said perhaps Hitler decided he was going to finish him off with the Luftwaffe, and that would be it. But it, it, none of this really made any sense. Suddenly, they found themselves with some breathing space. And so an SOS went out back to Britain. The situation was explained, and it was discovered that maybe they could evacuate these men. Now, I haven't told you how many there were. There were many. 390,000 of them. 390,000 sitting ducks. All Hitler had to do was press, and there'd be 390,000 carcasses. The hope was maybe they could save 50,000 of them. 
leave an awful lot of dead men or imprisoned men, but maybe 50,000, that would be good. And so the call for help went back to Britain. There was a call that was made, issued all, all around Great Britain, anybody, please, that has a sailing vessel, a seaworthy vessel of any kind, we don't care what it is, large or small, sail it across the channel. You'll be able to find Dunkirk because by day you can see the smoke rising and at night you can see the flames. The English Channel is not especially wide, you understand. And so the people responded. This was something that united the British. Then, much more so than now, British was such a, uh, Britain was such a, a, a class-conscious society, but then you had, you had bankers and lawyers and merchants and, and taxi drivers and fishermen and men and boys, people from every strata in British society taking whatever they could find heading across the channel. Some of these vessels were large, some were very small, like very small, some too big to be able to go into shore, and so the very small ones would ferry the military personnel from the, the shallow water out into the deep, from the shallow to the deep. With the beach at Dunkirk under attack from German artillery, bombers and fighter planes, this, this ragtag collective, this impromptu rescue force managed to evacuate against overwhelming odds, 340,000 British Belgians and French. Nothing quite like that had ever been seen. And without insinuating yourself into that circumstance, it may be hard for you to imagine just how, how desperate it absolutely was. For nine days, the rescue took place. For nine days. Again, no one to this day really... Of course, there are theories and one historian will speak with great confidence, as will another, but no one really understands what Hitler's motivation was. But they were given an opportunity at life, 390,000 men, and then the rescuers came. Then the rescuers came. Ladies and gentlemen, when the chance to be rescued from certain death comes your way, analysis is best left for another time. When a lifeline is thrown your way, you grab hold of it with both hands. That's the right thing to do. I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Daniel chapter 5. And as you turn to Daniel chapter 5, a, a passage with which you are rightly familiar you recognize we could go a hundred different directions with Daniel chapter 5. We could. But we shall not. We shall go one only. We'll read through some of this chapter, but I'm freely confessing to you I'm using Daniel chapter 5 really to make a point. And I think the point is a very important point. I shall tell you why. We are living this close to a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Can you say amen? That's what we believe. We believe we are living in a time when God is calling people to himself, people who by virtue of their surrender to Jesus, based on his great sacrifice for them, will receive not 
the mark of the beast, but the seal of the living God. We are involved in something that is not a game and that is far more important than merely life and death. Jesus is coming back soon. Satan is playing for keeps. Let me share this with you. This might be a detour. This may have nothing to do with anything. Let's find out. But I want to share it with you all the same. Uh, just very recently, I was with a couple of colleagues in Europe, and we were filming. We were filming a six parts of a nine-part series that's going to be broadcast on consecutive nights on uh, on 3ABN and other networks, uh, October-ish. And uh, this is, as you know, the time where we mark the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, you see. October 31, 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and, and changed the course of history. And so uh, we were there in, in various places. We filmed in Ireland the story of Patrick. Uh, certainly he was around a little before the Reformation. He was a trailblazer. We're in England and uh, Belgium talking about, uh, talking about um, 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 uh, William Tyndale, the Bible translator. We went to Spain and, and Rome and to the Vatican City, which similar but different, you understand. Uh, and in Spain, we went to a little place that was uh, the place where Ignatius of Loyola was born. You can't really talk about the Reformation without talking about the Counter-Reformation. And the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, were brought into existence for the purpose of rolling back the Reformation. Now, my point, in Wittenberg, Germany, in the city church, not the castle church, but the city church, where Luther and others preached very frequently, there's a painting on the back wall. The painting is by the Protestant Reformation artist, Lucas Cranach. And in the painting, he depicts a vineyard. Over here, the vineyard is being destroyed. And over here, and some of you have seen this, I would expect, and over here, the vineyard is being restored. There are other details as well. And at the bottom, Cronach paints what the painting means. He talks about what the medieval church, what the papacy was doing to destroy the church, and then what the reformers were doing to rebuild or to reform the church. Cronach paints it underneath the picture. But if you go to the city church in Wittenberg, Germany today, you'll see the painting, you'll see Cranach's interpretation, and then you will see another explanation written by the Lutheran church. And the Lutheran church says, we no longer agree with Lucas Cranach's interpretation of what the painting meant. Now, I don't know how you can disagree with the brother who painted the picture. But today's pro Protestant, I've got to lose, use that word carefully. Today's Protestant church looks at what Cronach did and how Cronach interpreted it and said, we don't look at it that way anymore. In fact, what we think the painting means now is it, it, it identifies those churches who will not come together and participate in the ecumenical movement. I, I'm building to a little point here. And so when we were in Rome, we went to a church called the Church of the Jesu. And some of you have been there undoubtedly. The Church of the Jesu, Jesu, the Church of Jesus. And this is the, the, the head church, the headquarters church for the Society of Jesus or the Jesuits. Remember what the Society of Jesus was formed for? To counter the Reformation. 
in that church, as a matter of fact, I, I might have come at it a different way. I was there on a Sunday, and I found myself attending Mass. As a former Catholic, uh, it kind of felt weird to be attending Mass again. Uh, I didn't go there to attend Mass. I went there on a Sunday morning to take some photographs. While I was in there, the most beautiful organ music started to play. It was magnificent. And I turned around, and I noticed a couple of people were taking their seats, but you know, nobody told me. And then, and then I, I, what in the world? There's a priest saying, in the name of the Father and of the Son, saying it in Italian, mind. And so what, what could I do? I'm, I'm up the front with my camera. Mass is starting. All I can really do is take a seat and, and hope none of you are in there with a the camera. I think we got to the place where they were singing a hymn, and I said, whoa, that's enough. I was out of there. There was something I was getting a photograph of. There's a magnificent statue in there. You could use other adjectives, I guess. It's magnificent. There's a statue of Mary. In the one hand, she's holding, oh, let me get it straight. I believe it's a key. That would be the key of heaven. In the other hand, she's holding a lightning bolt, and before her, two men are falling backwards. She is casting down Martin Luther and John Huss. Books are visible, but they are obscure. There's a cherub, a little angel, tearing pages out of a book. One might think it is a Bible, but the fellow I met who was there with a better lens than I had and better light, that's why I was back, Took a photograph on the spine. It says Ulrich Zwingli. You look on this book, Martin Luther, this one, John Calvin. Their writings are being cast down. Out in front of the church, out in front of the church, on the front wall, Ignatius Loyola with his foot on a, on a Protestant who was splayed out before him. Inside St. Peter's in the Vatican City, which is a magnificent building. Up on one side, a gigantic statue of, 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 what did I say his name was, Ignatius of Loyola, treading on, trotting, treading, stamping down on top of a Protestant, holding in his arms, not the Bible, but the constitution of the society of Jesus. Listen, here's my point. While Protestants are doubling over backwards, apologizing for the Reformation, we don't think this anymore. Not even the artist was right when he interpreted his own picture, Rome isn't changing her tune. Ladies and gentlemen, if you believe this is a time to tread water as a believer, if you believe 2017 is a time to play church, let me tell you something for nothing. We are caught in the midst of a great controversy. A great controversy. There is a battle raging for you. God wants you to be saved. Satan, more than anything in the world, wants you to be lost. The battle is raging and it's getting hotter with every passing day. And so we get to Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. Belshazzar made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. And you understand what he did here. He said, 
He said, my grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, sacked the temple in Jerusalem and stole a whole lot of sacred worship vessels. Bring them out. We are going to use them to praise our gods. Holy worship vessels to be used in the worship of the true God. And this scoundrel says, let's fill them with liquor and defile them with the slime of our throats and drink in praise of the devil himself. And while they did so, verse 5, fingers of a man's hand came forth and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. The king saw the part of the hand that wrote, his countenance was changed, his thoughts trouble him. You understand, uh, so panic-stricken that his knees started clattering together. As someone said, when God makes men fear, they cannot hide the intensity of their terror. This brother was terror-stricken. What do you do? There are now words written on a wall. How'd they get there? Where'd that hand come from? Friend of God, There is a time that God says, enough is enough. Cannot let you go any further in that. There is a time when when probation closes. When if you are living in sin, if you are living in opposition to God, that God says, all right, that's the choice you made. This is a solemn call and a sober call here. I hope to balance this up. I don't want anybody to leave under a cloud tonight. But my goodness, we must not be confused about the sinfulness, about the deadly nature of sin. We must not confuse ourselves by thinking that somehow it's safe to be in opposition to God. Somehow it's safe to go through the motions. Somehow it's safe to play church and not be serious about the great controversy in which we live. And so we read on. What happened? Bring somebody. Get the wise men. Can the wise men help? The wise men came out and said, no, we cannot. The queen mother said, there's somebody. I remember there's somebody. There was a brother named Daniel. When your grandfather had a similar conundrum, Daniel came. Daniel saved the day. Or was it a night? Daniel Daniel saved the whole situation. That's your man. Daniel was called out. Daniel was called out. Daniel, I'll make you a rich man. Just tell me what this stuff means. Daniel said, you can keep your gifts, but I'll tell you anyway, your majesty. The words, many, many, tickle you far seen. What do they mean? Number one, you are weighed in the balances and found wanting. Number two, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Uh, nope, that's wrong. I jumped forward one. I shouldn't have confessed it. Maybe you wouldn't have noticed it. But I try to be honest. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, that's number two. You are weighed in the balances and found wanting, and then your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. We could talk about that. You understand that this is not only a story, it's a prophecy. This parallels what's taking place down to the close of time. We read in Revelation chapter 14 and then Revelation chapter 18 that Babylon has fallen. And here, 
Babylon falls. Except you might think you are out of Babylon, but it might be that Babylon is not entirely out of you. And we can sit here at the safety of camp meeting and, 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 and without even meaning to perhaps look down our noses at folks who don't have it all right. Maybe there's a danger that we can congratulate ourselves, but if God were to send a watcher and a holy one here tonight, what would the writing on the wall say about you? Ladies and gentlemen, I wouldn't want to say we are in the same situation as Belshazzar. He was a lost man. But one day soon probation will close. Where will we be then? You've read the Bible. It says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Might that be you? Yes, that's you. There's great news that we, as we look at the Word of God. Belshazzar tragically didn't know the news. Well, well, that's not true. I got to back up from that statement. That's not true. Because Daniel even said to Belshazzar, you knew all this. You knew what happened. You had experience to learn from. And you've chosen not to learn from it. And so here we are. We have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you can tell me that the wages of sin is what? Death. Great. Great. We could make a mistake tonight. If we look outward and not inward. If we spent the rest of this week together talking about theological correctness only. Nothing wrong with that. I believe in that. But we didn't take time to confront the writing on the wall. If we didn't take time to confront what we see in the mirror, if we didn't take time to confront what's going on in our hearts, we would be doing ourselves a disservice. And so we read in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6 that John saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting, yeah, and now you could say, what's that about? What's that about? A good question. Well, let's work backwards. It's about, it's about the mark of the beast. Third angel talks about that. So it must be about the identity of the beast. Sure, that's important. Frankly, between you and me, I don't think we hear enough of that these days. I really don't. I, I, I think there's a danger that, that we are, that we may even be overbalanced. You've got to get that balance right. I think there's a danger we may be overbalancing, maybe, maybe overcompensating for, for, I don't know, what we perceive as being a lack of balance in, in days gone by, perhaps. I don't think we hear enough about that. Nevertheless, working backwards, second angel talked about Babylon. Babylon has fallen, is fallen, that great city. First angel talked about a judgment. That's important. We are living, brother, sister, in the time of heaven's final judgment. Would you say amen? We believe in that. We surely do. The Bible isn't going to change. We still believe in that. You could say in there, what else? What else? Fear God. Give glory to Him. Judgment time has come. Worship the one who has made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the fountains of water. That would really mean, remember the 
Sabbath day and do what with it? All right. And so we could talk about these idiosyncrasies, or that's almost a negative sounding word, though I don't mean it to be. We could talk about the particulars of the three angels' messages, and we, we couldn't really go wrong, except if we didn't start at the beginning, we might be doing ourselves a disservice. John said, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting, there you go, you know, the gospel is the good news, the good tidings. The gospel is the story of what God has done to reconcile to himself a rebel world. Might King Belshazzar have been saved? Might he? Yes or no? Could he have been? Had he made other decisions, we might see him along with his granddaddy in heaven because we have every reason to believe Nebuchadnezzar, the former heathen, died, died a saved man. Belshazzar might have as well. Good news. The good tidings. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was that's why Jesus came into the world. And so Jesus preached the gospel. It says that in the Bible numerous times. He said in Matthew 24, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom. Mark 1 and verse 15, repent and believe the gospel. Mark 16, verse 15, go and preach the gospel to every creature. Jesus was insistent about this. The gospel was important to him. Greek word, euangelion, derived from the word angelos, means a messenger. It's where we get the word evangelist. And evangelist literally is a bringer of good news. A bringer of good news. That's uh, something instructive for us evangelists. You don't want to be just the one, the bringer of the news about the beast. The bringer of good news. Amen. Amen. Somebody said that the three angels' message, or maybe the third angels' message, is simply the message of justification by faith in verity. It sounds a lot to me like it's the message of the gospel, which does not mean we should back up from the peculiars and the particulars of the three angels' messages, but when we are done proclaiming it, when we are done internalizing that, it should lead us to come face to face with the reality of the good news of the gospel. Shouldn't make you simply holier than your neighbor. Shouldn't make you Pharisee in any way, shape, or form. The gospel message is transformational. In classical Greek, this individual was one who brought a message of victory or other political or personal news that caused joy. Huh? An evangelist, if you like, in the literary term, not in the theological, uh, oratorical sense of the word. The evangelist back then, when the word was first used, was somebody who brought a message of joy. Come on now. Gospel ought to light you on fire with joy in the Lord. Jesus has saved you from something. Certain death. It is 
good news. We have friends, you understand, who contacted us. Please pray. Our son, 15 years old, he has been diagnosed with cancer. How in the world did that happen? 15 years old. Healthy as a horse. Fine young fella. Come with us on It Is Written mission trips. Preached. He's preached. I mean, this man, this young man, got a life ahead of him. He's got an intellect about, about, about the, the, the size of Texas. He is a spiritual boy who loves Jesus. He's already uh, uh, served in various places around the world in mission work. Oh, God, this cannot be. But the doctors confirmed it. Mm, it's cancer. Well, prayer was made, you understand, and uh, appointment was set. And so the family took the boy, and now it was going to be all about treatment options, and what do we do next? But the doctor took one more exam and had a look at some more records and checked some results, and he looked perplexed. And he said to them, you know, I was here to discuss treatment options with you, but we can no longer detect any cancer in this boy's body. Hallelujah. He's cancer-free. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, he never had cancer in the first place. Praise the Lord anyway. I don't care. Thank you, Jesus. There's no cancer there. Is that good news, yes or no? Gospel is better news. It's much better news. Much, much, much better news. There are treatment options for virtually, I say virtually, probably all, but virtually every illness that you can dream of. There are no treatment options for sin. It is a terminal illness. No doctor can save you. There are no natural remedies for sin. There is nothing you can concoct, nothing you can dream up, nothing at all. So the gospel becomes exceedingly Good news, because the gospel is the story of how we, we read the writing on the wall, we blanch, we blush, we, we, we recoil, but yet there is hope. There is hope for everybody tonight because of who? Jesus. All right, turn with me quickly, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are going to read a classic definition of the gospel. Classic. I'm going to read this tonight and talk about this, and you're going to think, that I done left the church and became a Baptist. Mm-mm. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. By the way, by the way, let me challenge you a little bit. What are Adventists known for? Sabbath vegetarianism uh, and, and prophecy seminars. And, <laughs> and tater tots? Is that what you said? I hope you said that. I mean, that's a good thing. I like that. That's all right. We're known for haystacks. You know what? Yeah. You know what I would like? I would like it if when somebody said Seventh-day Advent, if somebody else said, ah, oh, them folks are always talking about the gospel. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something? Adventist. Ah, Grace. You get our folks these days, and they're, they're naming the new churches, and it's the, uh, now careful, I don't mean to step on anybody's toes, but the new church is called the, uh, the XYZ Community Church, because we want people to know that we care about the community, or the XYZ Grace Church, because we want folks to know that we're about grace. We shouldn't need to put it in the name of the church. I mean, it's okay. It's a, uh, I'm not knocking that. Call it whatever the Lord leads you to. Call the thing. But, but, but 
somehow, I believe if we live this thing right, we can come to the place where somebody here is Seventh-day Adventist, and their response is, those, those are the people who love Jesus. I'd like that. First Corinthians chapter, did I say 15? I did. Verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. Here we go. Paul is declaring it. I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. What is it, brother Paul? Verse 2. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. All right, so this is vital. We are saved by this. That means the stakes are super high right now. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the, gospel, uh, uh, to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, and then the five hundred, and some are dead, and some are alive, and then James and the apostles, and so on, and then me, I'm the least, verse I'm not sure, 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me, Paul succinctly describes the gospel. You know, one, I don't even know how we got to this place, but if the pastor preaches about the Sabbath, you go, yeah. If he preaches about the Antichrist, you're like, oh, yeah. If he preaches about the gospel, it's like, mm, he's gone soft. No, we don't need to hear that. We need the real meat. I hear that. Maybe you've even said that. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get it straight. The real meat is the gospel. It just is. What Jesus has done, what he's doing, what he's going to continue to do. The saving work of God to reconcile us lost people to ourselves. I don't know. Maybe it's because we have the truth that we don't realize how lost, lost people really are. Maybe it's because we have so many advantages. Maybe because, I say this factually, because we know so much about the Bible and Bible prophecy. Maybe we think somehow that equates to holiness. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All. We are in desperate need of a Savior. Desperate need. That's just the truth. What happened? What happened? Jesus died for our sins. He was placed in a tomb and then... Hallelujah. He rose again. That's good news. And why did that happen? Because at the creation, God said to Adam and Eve, here, have this, have it all. Just don't have that, but have everything else. And that wasn't hard for them because they were created in such a way that they wanted to obey and obedience came naturally to them. Can you imagine? Obedience came naturally to them. And then one day, Eve is wandering about. She gets into a conversation with a snake. Now, you might have thought she'd have said, there's something weird about this. But she didn't. And by the time she was done, she had eaten the fruit, shared it with her husband. They had both eaten the fruit. And now they were naked. And far worse, now they were lost. And so what would you do if you were God? You know, Thomas Edison took him like, how many, how many tries before he got the light bulb figured out? Did you say 10,000? 2,000? It was a lot, right? I mean, I, I, I think I know, but I don't want to, if I'm wrong, I'm going to be wrong by about 5,000. It's a lot to be wrong by. 
Edison said he didn't fail. He just figured out thousands of ways that the light bulb did not work. They're all steps to making a better light bulb. Uh, You've done that, right? I don't know. Does anybody use wallpaper anymore? You hang a sheet of wallpaper, you go, oh, that's crooked. Take it down and do something different. You you, you got a little project at home, a home improvement project. Oh, that didn't work too well. Let's let's scrap that and try again. Here was God who built a planet and that, that didn't work too well. You would have excused God if he had decided just to try again. Well, this is def- there's a defective here, but understanding the great controversy as we do, we recognize that was not an option, not an option, and God had a better plan. Rather than starting again, he would demonstrate love and, and grace and, and mercy and his profoundly deep love instead of saying, let's consign them to the dumpster of the universe, God said, we can fix this. It's going to cost me a massive amount, but we can fix this if we pour loads of divine love into this situation. Lost people, and God decided to save them, even though it would cost the life of Jesus, and even though it would cause God immense anguish, and frankly, we cannot really know what the plan of salvation has cost God. It's impossible to know. Maybe eternity will start to reveal some of this to us. Why did he do that? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Could God love anyone, anything, a world, a a lost race that much? Yes, he could. And yes, he did. This way the law would be satisfied. Jesus would succeed where humanity failed. God could give humanity his righteousness and still they could enter into everlasting life. We see so much. Sin matters. Ladies and gentlemen, sin matters. There was Belshazzar the king fooling around with sin. And one day God said, that's it. He said, oh my goodness, it's too late for me. It was too late for him. Sin is not to be trifled with. Listen, man, if there's something in your life that you know should not be there, get rid of it. Jesus said, it's better for you to go to heaven with one hand or one eye than to have both hands and both eyes and go to hell. Whatever it's going to cost you to get right with God, get right with God. And you know that Jesus isn't talking about mutilation. He's talking about surrender, which in some instances is less comfortable than having a hand amputated. Surrender. Let it be right. In order to get to heaven, we need righteousness. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Here we are separated from God. Isaiah 59 and verse 2. Our sin separates between us and God. How in the world? Jacob dreamed about a ladder. Moses told him to bring out a lamb. Water came out of a rock. This represented Jesus, the water of life as well. He would be the light of the world. Look into the sanctuary. There were seven branches of a candlestick all burning the bread of life. Jesus is represented to us in so many ways. He is the way of escape. Jesus died for you. And I don't know if you've died for anybody lately, 
But I cannot imagine what goes through a person's mind as they weigh this thing up and say, yeah, I'll die. Let alone, I'll die for someone who hates me. I'll die for someone who hates me, not knowing whether they'll even respond. I'll do this by faith. I will die and give so much up and then uh, think that, that the one dying is the creator of the universe and he's dying for us. I don't know. I can't do this justice. I just cannot. Even John couldn't do it justice. That's why he said, behold, the manner of God. Uh, sorry. Behold, the manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. The gospel, what Jesus has done, what Christ has accomplished, what we may accept, the spotless, holy Lamb, the Son of Almighty God, dying so that we might live. This is incomprehensible. Uh, however, we ought to be sure that we're not rowing with only one oar in the water. You know what happens if you're rowing a boat. You need two oars if you're rowing like this. If you let go of one and row with the other, what happens to the boat? Man, we've got a lot of people going around in circles. Let's see if we can balance this up just a little bit, can we? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22. 1 Peter 2, 22. I'll give you a second to turn there because I'd like you to see it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Speaking of, well, let's back up just ever so slightly. After all of that, we'll start in verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. That's important. He left us an example to follow. Verse 22, who committed no sin, neither was deceit or guile found in his mouth. He was holy, this one was, perfect and undefiled. Verse 23, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not but committed himself to him who judges righteously. This one lived an entirely perfect life, the life Adam and Eve should have lived, but chose not to live. Then verse 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, here we go, that we, listen, all of this build up by Peter here. Peter, who ought to understand something about the power of the gospel. Peter writes this build-up about who Jesus was and what he did. And then, when you're sitting and listening and, 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 and you're just like, this is beautiful, he grabs you and drags you right in. He says here, so that we, Jesus did and Jesus did and Jesus was and Jesus accomplished, so that we, notice what he says, so that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Follow it now. He bore our sins on the cross. We are healed by his stripes. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 53. Good news, but follow the good news. The good news, the good news and it's all part of the good news. It's not the good news and this is part of of the good news. You can't separate this out of the gospel. I don't know why anybody would want to. He says here, so that 
we may, must, die to sin and live for righteousness. How about that? The gospel. Jesus died. Don't put a comma or something or a dash, not a period. Jesus died so that we can die. Not die because of sin, but die to sin. Death to sin and living for righteousness. Back to Isaiah 53, at least an allusion to it in verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See what the gospel encompasses here. What Jesus did so that he might get things done in our lives. The gospel isn't a spectator sport, man. The gospel is about participation. The gospel is about being involved, about being impacted. Uh, sinners without a shot at life because of what Jesus did. Now we have the opportunity to die to sin and live for righteousness. That we might be healed by his stripes. Jesus committed himself to the Father uh, to bear the sins of the world so that we might experience transformation in our life. Here's the question. How's that working out for you? Now, ladies and gentlemen, I want to caution you against something. If you spend your time looking at what you're not and then what you ought to be, and, and that's how you do, oh, man, I, I'm, I'm a wretch, and I know I ought to be this, you're going to be miserable, just miserable. You'll never be successful, and I don't know, I'd hate to say this to you, but probably never going to be saved. Now, once you look at your sin, take a good long look at it. Even when you're not looking at it, you'll see it, because that's kind of how sin is. And then instead of saying to yourself, oh, man, I've got I've, I've to be like this. Instead of doing that, you, you recognize your sinfulness, and then you look to Jesus. You will never experience transformation by looking at yourself or imagining what you ought to be. By beholding, we become changed. You don't become changed into anything but a misery if you behold yourself. But behold Christ, and you must be impacted. You must be changed. I have read the writing on the wall as concerns me. It isn't pretty. But I've read John 3 and verse 16 which says, whoever believes might not perish, but have everlasting life. I've read 1 John 4 and verse 4. It's a message to me. It says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There is victory in Jesus. Your amen was pathetic. I'm talking about good news, and you're listening to this like the person in the chair saying, oh, really? Did you say a root canal? Okay. Oh, no, maybe you're just uh, Scandinavian. I don't know. It could be that. Could be your Germanic roots. Could be anything. Who knows? You shall call his name Jesus. For well, he will save his people from their sins. If any man be in Christ, if any woman be in Christ, he, she is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have what? 
become new. So you've got what Jesus did, and now you become new. Everything about you becomes new. Listen, what Jesus wants to do for you is higher than the highest human thought can think. Higher. This goodness, this power, this love, this transformation of Jesus is, is beyond really our ability to, 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 to get it, to really, we can, we can believe it by faith and rejoice in it, celebrate in it. The gospel is really good news. God will save you. He will change you. He will take you, the sinner, and transform you into you, the saint. He'll prepare you for heaven. In heaven right now, there's a, I don't know, is it, is it Jesus? Or is, he, is, he, is he contracting some of this work out? I imagine there's somebody carving a nameplate for a door of a mansion with your name on it. Come on now. Life is a battle and a march sometimes. Did you hear me? A battle. A battle and a march. I've been in Michigan a while. A battle and a march. But there's hope because of what Jesus did and what Jesus will do in you. You must believe tonight that Jesus can work in you in, in powerful ways to do what you never could. We can die to self tonight so that Jesus can live in us so that when temptation comes, it doesn't have to knock us down. There isn't a temptation in the world before which you must fall. There isn't one. For if you call on the name of Jesus, he will send every angel in heaven to your help to give you strength when most you need it. The Bible says we can come boldly to the throne of what? Grace. What do we get there? Mercy and grace to help in time of need. Oh, I tell you, you ought to rejoice to be a believer tonight. And if you are a Seventh-day Adventist and you've got this book and you understand it like you ought to, you ought to be the happiest person in the land. We serve a wonderful God. We serve a fantastic Savior. Paul said when writing to the Thessalonians very clearly that the gospel is to be obeyed. Obeyed. So in thinking about the gospel, again, don't limit it simply to what Jesus did. That's good and it's, it's, it's amazing. Now, I don't think we take away from that when we talk about now the gospel speaks to what Jesus wants to do in you. The transformation he wants to, 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 to see, to produce, to carry out in your life. We need not set our sights low. But we can afford to say to Jesus, whatever you want it done, whatever you want done, do it. Do it in my life. You remember, don't you? I believe the year was 1987. I mean, of course you remember. 1987 was, I was just yesterday. Really? The funny thing, I remember uh, my dad, my dad would say things like, uh, he, he, maybe he'd be reading the newspaper and there'd be an article that Talks about, my dad would say, oh, I know that. I know that fella. Do you, dad? You go, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen him in 40 years. And I would think, how is that possible? <sighs> so 1987, you remember it because it was yesterday. In Midland, Texas in 1987, a little girl, 18 months old, was playing in the yard with, I think, her cousins, and she disappeared. She disappeared down a well. It was eight inches wide, and she went down 22 feet. 
and that well went down through rock that the authorities said was as hard as granite. The eyes of the world were on baby Jessica. Well, they weren't actually. They were on a hole. Nobody's eyes were on baby Jessica because she was lodged 22 feet down a, a little well pipe shaft. CNN wasn't yet 10 years old. This was really the first this was the coming out party for round-the-clock news coverage, really. Someone described it as a media circus. I'm sure it was, but it was also a reflection of the concern of the world. Uh, she was referred to often as everyone's baby. Then President Ronald Reagan said everybody in America became godmothers and godfathers of Jessica while this was going on. And people pitched in, they sent toys, they sent money, the local people baked cakes and made tea and brought juice and all of that for the, uh, for the rescue workers. Little girl down a well. Basically, why would you even care? I, uh, listen, babies die all the time. You don't, you don't care. I'm not saying you don't care, but you don't know. You're oblivious to the fact. Babies die. Young children die. It happens all around the world. You've got to be thousands every day that die. You're not losing any sleep over that. Why would we care about this one? Why would we care? Well, this was different, wasn't it? 20-pound girl stuck down a pipe. She wasn't dead. She was alive. We had to do something. Just had to. And look desperate. It seemed like, well, maybe she was never going to get out of there. But thank God she did. She spent, what, 50 hours or 52 hours or something down that well. When they got her out, they amputated a toe, one, one of her little toes. I think if you spend two plus days down a well and you get out of it with everything but a little toe, I think you did okay. I think you did good. It's easy for me to say I got all my toes, but I think you did okay. You know, baby Jessica is now no longer baby Jessica. She's Jessica Morales. She's married, and she lives about a mile and a half from that well today. Of course, she doesn't remember anything except for the fact she's missing a toe. And that she has a scar on her forehead, a little scar, where she was stuck down that well. So I don't know if she thinks about it. My guess is she probably doesn't too much. But every time she looks in a mirror, she comes face to face with the reality that she was lost and she couldn't save herself. And help came from above. And she was saved, saved against the odds, saved after a Herculean effort. Saved after great expense was incurred. Saved after people, people offered all kinds of things. Hang on to my baby's, my little boy's ankles and lower him down there. And they tried, they, they, they thought to try, they never did that stuff. It was just make a bad situation worse. There's a young woman in Texas, while we sit here, has got a scar on her forehead. The scar tells the story of a rescue effort, a rescue effort she had nothing to do with. A rescue effort she did not ask for. 
but a rescue effort that saved her and transformed her life. Do you think she's grateful today? I think she's grateful today. I think she might think back to that. She probably has newspaper clippings, maybe scrapbooks. I'm guessing about that. I expect she has that. Pictures, framed photographs, all of that. Probably has a DVD of news reports. Thinking if she watches that with her children today, her children would be amazed and impressed. How about you go back and watch the coverage? How about you go back and read the reports? How about you go back and look at the pictures and review what was done for you that Friday afternoon when you were hopelessly lost? And heaven spared no expense and kept digging and digging and working and working, striving and straining until you became saved. Or at least came to the place where salvation was within your reach. Salvation was something you could say yes to. Whose idea was that God's? Did we deserve it? No, we did not. Is it good news? It's good news. It's the gospel, what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus is doing in us. Don't miss both. The writing on the wall for you says you have been weighed in the balances and you're found wanting. But Jesus has lived and died so that you might live forever. It's good news. Can you say amen? We are to pray right now, our Father and our God. Never let us forget how good is this good news. Don't let us be unmindful or unresponsive. You died to save us, so have us. Take our hearts, make them yours forever. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Please say, Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.